Well, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. We thank you for uh, the way that you have spoken. That every word from you is yours. It bears your authority. It bears your power. We have prayed this morning. We've had the scripture read. We have sung your praises. We have directed our thoughts to you. All of that is is worship. This is worship too, to come before your word and to hear and to think and to contemplate, to see what it is you teach us and how you will continue to transform us as your people and, and draw those who don't know you. And we thank you in your holy name. Amen. Continuing on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, this morning we come to Moses. Now, last week we talked about Moses' parents, the world in which they lived. Moses was born as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and he was born at a time when their descendants were suffering terribly in Egypt. We, uh, if we were raised in the church, perhaps maybe we, we heard some of these stories as flannel graphs. We saw the, the, the cute pastel pictures, and, and, uh, and that's okay. We need to learn history. We need to learn what Scripture says. But these are not flannel graph stories. These are historical events about real people. That's what we've been seeing all through Hebrews chapter 11, is, uh, is not so much spiritual heroes and giants, but case studies of people exactly like you and me, people with a sin nature, people with a history, people with a past, people with struggles, people with hopes and dreams, uh, who, who God tapped for a moment of their life to achieve his purposes. When Moses was born, the Pharaoh had ordered that newborn Hebrew boys be drowned in, in the Nile by God's providence. His parents, Amram and Jochebed, hid him for three months as long as they could. The object of their faith was always God, but the objective of their faith changed. The initial objective of their faith was to, to hide him. The, the next objective of their faith was to relinquish him to God and entrust him into the hands of God. Again, by the providence of God, Moses was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. She had pity on him. She adopted him as her own son. Acts 7.22 says that Moses was educated in all of the ways of Egypt. He came to have power in word and action. From a human point of view, Moses had it all. He had privilege, he had power, he had education, he had a high social standing. When Moses was about 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And when he thought no one was looking, he killed the Egyptian and then buried his body in the sand to cover up his crime. The next day he came across two Hebrews who were arguing and he rebuked them. And one of them said, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses discovered that his secret wasn't a secret. It turns out that even Pharaoh had learned about it and ordered that Moses be killed. And Moses escaped from Egypt and ran to Midian. If you want to look in the back of your Bible, if you have a map that shows the, the greater area 
of the Middle East, the land of Midian is on the east side of the Gulf, the Gulf of Aqaba uh, off of the Red Sea. The Red Sea heads northwest and then it splits off into kind of a Y. The left side is the Gulf of Suez. The right side is the Gulf of Aqaba. So uh, Midian was actually part of what's now northwestern Saudi Arabia. For the, for the sake of time, I'm not going to say much more about that. I want to just turn our attention to Hebrews 11 because the substance of Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 is actually very rich. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, I'm sorry, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So to put it in very simple terms, Moses' faith in Yahweh led him to separate himself from every advantage that he had been given as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter led him to turn away from his education, from his power, from his privilege. Now, what was it exactly that Moses had in Egypt? What was his earthly advantage? We're told in these verses, uh, the first thing is that he's called son of Pharaoh's daughter. This isn't just a description of his relationship. It's given to us as a title. Not one Greek manuscript out there has the word the at the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It doesn't say he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the title son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a little bit more significant. But being son of Pharaoh's daughter involved tremendous privilege and power. It certainly protected him from the the oppression and the suffering that his own people were experiencing. Everybody knew that Moses was Hebrew. She knew it. Her maids knew it. Everybody knew it. It wasn't any big surprise. The Ten Commandments got got it wrong there. But he was protected by that position and by that relationship. The second thing that we see is that he had access to the passing pleasures of sin. Now, the Hebrew people who were then in bondage, in slavery, who were suffering so greatly, sinned. We know that they sinned because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They sinned in word. They sinned in thought. They sinned in deed. They sinned sins of omission. They sinned all those kinds of sins. But what they really couldn't cast themselves into were the passing pleasures of sin. Their sins might have been more along the lines of sins of complaint, sins of bitterness, sins of unforgiveness, sins of violence against one another. But Moses had access to a vast marketplace of sinful pleasures that were not available to the poor and the oppressed. And third, Moses had access to the treasures of Egypt. doesn't say that he actually held them all in possession, that he had ownership of them. It could be as son of Pharaoh's daughter that he stood to inherit some. But whether he stood in line to inherit or not, they were working for his benefit. 
Queen Elizabeth II in, in England has an heir, her son Charles, and he has an heir, his son um, William, and, and that's kind of the, the line, unless something really devastating happens, it'll follow that line all the way down. But the other members of the royal family, while they don't have formal possession of all those treasures, they have all the benefits of them. Their livelihood is paid for. They have the, the, the power and the privilege. Ironically, it was Joseph, the Hebrew slave of Pharaoh who first went to Egypt that had, had tremendously magnified the wealth of the Pharaohs. Genesis 41.56 says that when the famine hit Egypt, remember there were seven fantastic years of harvest and seven years of famine. So 41.56 says that when the famine hit Egypt, Joseph sold food to the Egyptians. Where'd the money go? Went to Pharaoh. The famine continued and the people of Egypt came to Joseph and they said, we don't have any money. And he said, that's okay, I'll take your livestock. Where did the livestock go? They went to Pharaoh. The famine continued, and we see in chapter 47, verse 20, that when the money and the livestock was gone, they came to Joseph and they said, all we have is ourselves and our land. And Joseph said, I'll take it. And Pharaoh took possession of the land, and the people were to work the land in this peasant relationship, a serfdom relationship. And he was very generous. Pharaoh owns the land. You work the land and you keep 80% of what you raise. You only pay 20%, but Pharaoh owns the land. So whatever property, possessions, wealth, treasures Pharaoh had before Joseph came along, during the seven years of that famine, Joseph increased the wealth of the Pharaoh family, the dynasty, to a tremendous degree. And Moses says, that which my kinsmen made for you, I walk away from. Moses turned his back on those privileges and pleasures and treasures. Why? It was because of God's eternal promise. God had made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about a future eternal reward for the people of God. The verses we're looking at, verses 24 to 26 in Hebrews 11, begin with the, the, the words, by faith, Moses, and they end with the words in verse 26, was looking to the reward. And you can really summarize those three verses with that phrase, by faith, Moses was looking to the reward. And it was because he was looking to the reward that all of the rest of this happened. And he was looking to the reward because he believed God. Because he took Yahweh seriously. Uh, what was the reward? It was the promises made to the patriarchs, primarily to Abraham and repeated to Isaac and Jacob, that they would have descendants that would be impossible to count, that they would be blessed by Yahweh, that they would be the source of blessing for every family, every nation in the, on the world, that the covenant Yahweh made with them would be an eternal covenant, and the eternal nature of the covenant means that it is a spiritual covenant. Not belonging on this earth. We've already seen in, in Hebrews 11, verse 10, that Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's not talking about an earthly city. 
verses 13 through 16 in Hebrews 11, it says, All these died in faith without having received the promises, having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were seeking a country of their own. They desire a better country, a heavenly country. That's what the patriarchs wanted. It's what Abel wanted. It's what Enoch wanted. You know, in our time, just, just from a secular point of view, we can get the, this mindset that until about 100 years ago, people were really dumb. And boy, we're the smart generations. We're really the smart ones. And we, we forget an astronomer named uh, Copernicus who, who charted out the, the orbits of all the planets of our solar system simply by watching the sky. No space telescopes, no computers. He simply watched the sky for decades and recognized planets as opposed to stars and charted their courses. And it's amazing how accurate he was for having nothing but his eyes and his brain. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. These people didn't have the written scriptures. They didn't have the full revelation of God that we have in our hands today. But they knew this. They knew that God had made an eternal reward to his people. And they trusted that and they looked to that. If Moses had not believed the promises of God, if he he hadn't believed that there was a city that God had designed and built, if he had not believed that there was a better heavenly country, then he would have been a fool to give up what he gave up. Son of Pharaoh's daughter, pleasures of sin, treasures of Egypt. There are people in our world who say all that is, all that exists is is what you can see and what you can taste and what you can touch and nothing else exists. There's no spiritual world. There's no life after death. There's no God. When you die, you're just an animal. That's all there is. And it shouldn't surprise us when those people run after sin and run after everything that they can get immediately. It should surprise us when those people say that certain things are right or wrong. Because if you are just, as one Christian scholar has put it, if you are just highly evolved pond scum, then what does it matter whether something is right or wrong? If you're created in the image of God, if if there is an eternal world to come, then of, of course it does matter greatly. And because Moses believed the promises of Yahweh, because he believed that God had designed and built an eternal city, not of this earth, because he believed that the people of God would receive a better heavenly country, he did the only rational thing, which is give up what was in front of him. Because it was just temporary. So Moses, for the sake of the eternal promise of God refuses to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. He prefers ill treatment with the people of God than the passing pleasures of sin. And he chooses the reproach of Christ. He considers it to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And when he did this, then Moses suffered at least two earthly disadvantages that you and I suffer. Now, I'm not a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And my mom would agree. I'm not a son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
But I, I do have access to the passing pleasures of sin, as you do. I don't have access to the treasures of Egypt, but I have access to treasures. This world offers us things. Moses had two disadvantages with this choice that he make, made, and they're the same disadvantages that you and I have. The first one was ill treatment with the people of God. We're told that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. For us, ill treatment might mean being marginalized with friends. It might be uh, the, the object of humor. It might mean being accused of being mean-spirited or narrow-minded. And I'll tell you this, if, if you stand up in this day and age for the life of the unborn, for, for biblical godly sexuality, you will be called mean-spirited, narrow, bigoted, phobic. Somehow, if, if we disagree with each other, that's, that's out of fear. It's not out of fear, it's out of conviction. Understand that for Moses, ill treatment meant the, the confiscation of wealth and property, the brutality of slavery, the murder of infant boys, being treated like an animal rather than as a human being. But Moses chose that over the ease and comfort of palace life. He didn't choose this till he was 40. He was brought to, to Pharaoh's daughter by his mother when he'd been weaned. Three years old, I don't know, four years old, three years old, somewhere in there. Typically when they had all their baby teeth. So he had spent, let's just say, 37 years being raised in the palace. He'd never worked for anything. He'd been educated. God had blessed him and made him a man of power in word and action. But he'd never suffered. He'd never gone without. Nobody had ever laid a whip across his back. That's what he chose. He, he murdered the Egyptian, and that was a sin. But let's remember that he committed that sin because he was determined to stand with his people. He chose the wrong way to do it. He slew the Egyptian, which, which by the way, is in, for a long time for me, has, has been a great catchphrase for, I'm going to do what I think God wants me to do in my own power, in my own wisdom. God wanted Moses to deliver the people of Israel, but not through human power and violence. That's using Egyptian methods to rescue people from the Egyptians. We don't use the methods of the world to rescue people from the world. As a result of his faith and the decision to reject being son of the Pharaoh's daughter and rejecting the pleasures of sin for a season and rejecting the treasures of Egypt... Moses then spent 40 years in the land of Midian. As I said, it's the northwestern border of Saudi Arabia. It is a dry, barren place today. It was a dry, barren place then. He spent those years working as a shepherd, ironically, someone who was raised to be a professional, raised to be white-collar, not blue-collar, but he comes, becomes blue-collar. Moses also chose the reproach of Christ. The word reproach means shame or insult or disgrace. 
Now, it seems a little odd to say that Moses, 1,400 years before Jesus was born, would choose the reproach of Christ. How is it possible that he could choose the reproach of someone that he didn't know and couldn't possibly have known was coming? It doesn't mean that Moses knew who Jesus was 1,400 years before the incarnation. What it means is that the shame and disgrace of all of those who follow God ultimately is the shame and disgrace experienced by the Lord Jesus. So we see in Peter's first epistle verse chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation if you share in the sufferings of christ you will share in the glory of christ Jesus is always identified with the suffering of his people. So the author of Hebrews takes the reproach that Moses experienced and he lifts it to the highest possible level. And he said, you know what Moses thought he was experiencing? Whatever he was thinking at the time, it was the sufferings of Christ, the reproach of Christ he accepted. And it's ironic, he probably experienced more peace and comfort joy of family in Midian with a wife, with sons than he ever had in Egypt. He's out of the land of slavery. Yes, he knows his people are there. He knows that they're still bound in slavery. He knows that they're still suffering. But he's away from that. That no longer applies to him. The Lord comes to him then when he is 80 speaking through the burning bush. Moses died at the age of 120 But people at this time were dying at at 100 or 110 or 120. So 80 years old is is up there. 80 for for Methuselah was was just starting to get a little bit of facial hair. 80 for Moses was, was the elderly years. It should have been the time when Moses' sons were standing up and saying, you take it easy, we're going to do the work. And God calls Moses and he says, I want you to go back and deliver these people. And Moses chooses the reproach of going back to do the hard thing. It's what the people of God have always suffered. Paul said this, about his experience, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I have spent in the deep, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, my countrymen, the Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Most of us will never experience anything remotely close to what Moses went through or what Paul went through, but we experience the reproach of Christ if we stand for him. It's a given. It's a given. Let's think of then about bringing this home and what it means for us. 
in the, the faith of Moses, the example that we're given, it's the example of a man who was rescued out of suffering and given it all and then turned away from it all because of his faith in God and he pursued eternity. There are obviously people in our world who who say that they're atheists. The Bible says that there are no atheists, that they know God exists and they suppress that knowledge. But there are people who claim to be atheists, who claim that there is no God, there is no spiritual world, there is no life after death. This is it. You're just an animal that's more advanced than other animals and you live your life accordingly. And that's really sad. But what's worse are behavioral atheists. Behavioral atheists, that's my term, behavioral atheists are people who would say that they believe in God but live as though he doesn't exist. They believe in heaven but live as though heaven doesn't exist. They might say that they believe that a day of judgment is coming but they don't live that way. They say Jesus is their savior but they don't live that way. They live just like atheists live. We must not do that. We must not say Jesus is Lord and at the same time live as though everything evolved and nothing ultimately matters. Moses had this privilege of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, of having access to the temporary pleasures of sin. The treasures of Egypt were within his reach. But by faith, he understood that God had made an eternal promise. And he turned away from all of that. And then he lived his life as though what was coming in the future was real. That's what it means when it says he was looking to the reward. He chose to, he chose to endure ill treatment, considering the re- reproach of Christ greater riches because he was looking to the reward. It, it used to be said, I used to hear all the time, maybe it's not as much anymore, that some people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. The person who is truly heavenly minded is the person who does the most earthly good. If you get buried in the things of this world, you're in deep trouble. Jesus says this about his people. He says in his priestly prayer in John 17, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You are, if you are in Christ, then you are not of the world even though you're in the world. Those who are of the world are not in Christ. Those who are in Christ are not of the world. Those are exclusive things. You're still in the world until the Lord chooses to take you home or until he returns. So you were born into a country, into a state, into a city, into a family. You were born into an ethnic group. You were born with a a language. You reflect the values of the time and place where you were raised. You remain in this world. But if you are in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you are not of this world. You have another country. A heavenly country. It's a better country. You have a city, not built by city city planners, but designed and built by God himself. You have been adopted as a child of God and placed into his family. You have a new culture that has been already defined for you by Scripture. You have been provided with new values, new morality, 
that reflects your new family, that reflects your new country, that reflects your new city. The challenge isn't how do we have a happy life on earth. The challenge is how do we live here while belonging there? How do we keep our hearts there while we remain here? That's the hard thing. There are a lot of people raised in the church who abandon that. They grow up and they say, I don't want the then, I don't want the there, I want it now, and I want it here. By faith, Moses looked to the reward. We are to do the same. There's going to be ill treatment, but the ill treatment is as temporary as the pleasures. The ill treatment we suffer for the sake of Christ is as temporary as the pleasures the world offers. Yes, there's going to be reproach or shame or opposition to those of us who live faithfully in Christ, but one day we'll learn that those reproaches and shames were actually greater riches than anything the world can offer. So why wait until you die to realize that there is a reward that's better? Why wait until the end to live for the Lord Jesus? Why waste your life pursuing temporary momentary experiences? Why not instead set your sights on him? And through the admonition of the scripture and the help of the Holy Spirit, Determined to learn how to live with your heart there while you remain here. Father, we thank you for this example of Moses and we thank you for the power of his life, which was not due to him. That was due to you. It was for your glory, it was for your honor. You saved him, you called him. You granted him eternal life. We can't begin to imagine what he suffered. We, we've, we've got that, that verse in, in Exodus 2 and 3 where 40 years passes. Just in a few words. Yochebed surrendered him to Pharaoh's daughter, the blink of an eye, and Moses is now 40 years old. Father, I don't know what the highlights of of my life will look like. I don't know if someone wrote of me after my death three highlights, what those highlights would be. I, I know that I want my heart today to be with you. The hard thing is to live here while looking forward to there. The hard thing is to live now while looking forward to then. I lift up all of my brothers and sisters and I ask that you would peel our fingers loose of the things of this world. You give them to us to enjoy, not to cling to. certainly not to worship or defend. 
Would you by your spirit set our eyes on heaven? Set our eyes on what it will be to be sinless. To be free of temptation. To be full of joy that that isn't soured by suffering. And we thank you for this and all the things that you do in and through us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.